Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Dave Vandenbout, comparing and contrasting careers in industry and academia. In particular, we discuss the similarities between being an entrepreneur and an early career professor. We discuss managerial hierarchies, and we consider the opportunities for leaving a professional legacy. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 128, Industrial Academic, March 20th, 2017. So, Brian... Did you ever consider becoming an academic instead of pursuing an industrial career? Only briefly. Likewise, I decided I didn't look good in tweed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we know that's uh, the most important criteria of becoming an academic. Yeah, if I don't look good in those jackets with the elbow pads on them, like what? There's no point. I don't think ESD smocks necessarily look that hot either. That's why I don't wear one either. I like to live dangerously. Nothing but uh, wool footy pajamas and carpets in my lab. Poor CMOS. Yeah, if the chip's going to blow, I got to know about it before I ship it. Exactly. I got to weed out the weak ones. Exactly. So that's my line of thought. I like to spend a week figuring out which pin in the BGA is blown or lifted. <laughs> Sounds like a fun game. Degree of difficulty, no x-rays. Nice. Yeah. No, I don't know. I think the main reason I couldn't become a professor is basically uh, I don't have the patience to teach anybody anything, really. Can't suffer the stupid. Uh, no, I. I mean, I can. I can do it for a day or so, but I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna devote my life to it. Not that I'm some uh, sort of genius who's above everybody. Just not a good fit for me. Yeah, I, I. I don't know if I could ever. I don't know if I could ever handle uh, working on the same project for more than a year. And I'm on year two of the current project, and I'm getting kind of itchy. Mm-hmm. Stop studying bed bugs. Yep. That bed bed bug death ray ain't going to build itself. Yeah. Well, is it so much studying in the topic or is it hiring grad students and filling out grants? See, and I've never had to do that. So I'm going to assume that that's the best part of the job. And that's why everyone does it. Probably. It's (laughs) not because you're forced to or anything. No, lobbying people for money is always a positive experience. Yes. Yes. No bad things have ever come from lobbying. Yes. (laughs) All right. Before we sidetrack and become the next Pod Save America, (laughs) we should probably talk about our topic today. And we're going to discuss, you know, what the differences are between academia and a career in industry. And to help us along with our discussion, discussion, we have a man who's done both. Um, He's a previous guest on the show back from episode uh, 103, Ones and Zeros. He lives here in North Carolina, Raleigh, same as me. And he runs his own firm, XS. He is the Sultan of Snark, the Dictator of Deadpan, and the Pharaoh of Field Programmable Gatorades, Dr. Dave Vandenbot. Dave, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Carmen. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, thanks for having me on, uh, bringing me back for my yearly visit where I try to drive off whatever listeners you might still have. You know, (laughs) we just want to keep saying we're in this for the love, not the money. So we have to keep bringing you on to uh, weed out the herd. (laughs) Well, you're certainly you're certainly coming through on the money. All right. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Or not. (laughs) 
Hey, I mailed you those cereal box tops for education. Those are worth 10 cents a piece, according <laughs> to that. I, I actually had a friend in college that uh, put, himself, put himself through school by cutting the coupons out of the Sunday circulars from newspapers. He would get them from the newspapers that, for the newspapers they didn't sell, and he would cut all the little coupons out and redeem them for like a tenth of a cent. Really? He, he put a, together enough money to go to college. Damn. Wow. That's dedicated. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> he, was, he was dedicated, all right. But back then, you know, tuition was like $300 a semester. Oh. <laughs> My cousin thought she could do it by uh, returning uh, Coke cans and stuff because up north you get five cents a piece. And, mm. you know, after like six garbage bags netted her 20 bucks, she was like, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> the old Seinfeld episode where they were trying to trying to bring all the uh, Coke, uh, all the all the used cans over to Connecticut or someplace. Michigan. In Michigan, yeah, with the yep. yeah, with the uh, with Newman's postal truck, <laughs> such a good show. I've been rewatching it on uh, Hulu recently. I'm in season four. <laughs> Just watched the contest episode today. Oh yeah, that's that's a good one. That's that's another classic. Hard hard to believe all the hoopla that went on in in the United States in 1998 when that show went off the air. It's like nothing else must have happened in 1998 if if that was like the big story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much. Is an American institution. We were saving up all of our drama for Y2K. <laughs> yeah, really? <laughs> yeah, stockpile it just in case. <laughs> okay, what do you want to talk about in the differences between academia and and uh, and uh, the the real world out there in, in uh, corporate America? Well, I mean, uh, since you and Jeff have, have done each of them, I figured I would just let you guys duke it out and I could take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of like working in corporate America, isn't it? I mean, you know, I got to get through my meetings somehow. <laughs> yeah, find some other guy to do the do the work, and you sit back and uh, you know let it roll. But yeah, uh, yeah, I'm gonna right. play Angry Birds over here. You guys, let me know if you need anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I mean, uh, all my my corporate experience was back at Bell Laboratories back from '78 to '83, and uh, I also did uh, ten months uh, of contract work at uh, ABB back in 1997. And uh, my academic work was uh, from 1987 to 1993 as a as an electrical and computer engineering faculty member. And uh, so all of my inf- all my information is about a quarter of a century old. <laughs> and so I, uh, and I was going to say, uh, does Bell Industries <laughs> even count as uh, in- industry, or is it still academia, just in a, under a different? Oh no, name? it it was industry where I was. It was it was not the uh, you, you know it was it wasn't Murray Hill over in New Jersey. It was uh, a small branch lab out in Indianapolis where we where we did a lot of uh, projects related with uh, end user telephone equipment, and uh, we were getting into uh, data terminals and things like that because it was a time of uh, the period when the Bell system was being freed to do competition with the uh, outside of the telephone area, uh, arena. So they were developing their own PCs and everything. There were at least 10 groups in Bell Labs duking it out, trying to develop their own personal computers after the IBM standard. So, yeah, it was it was pretty much of an um, – it was more and more D than R in, in that in that area. So uh, whereas, you know, when you get out to Murray Hill, it was more, more R than D. Mm-hmm. I think I remember you saying you were the uh, token software guy for a while too. Yeah, yeah, yes. So I came from industry for many years and then went – into academia. Mm-hmm. So you were immediately out of school at Bell Labs and then right. back into academia and then back out? 
Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I was in uh, at the labs for five years, and, and then I uh, went back to get my PhD, and then after that, I, I went into the faculty world for a while for about six years. Right. And uh, I mean, the main the main difference that I saw between the two areas is is that you know the the industrial was extremely hierarchical. And you didn't have any real worries about money, at least at my level. It was all handled in the upper reaches of the of the company, you know, as to how much money was going to be coming into your group or not. And right. then when you switch over to academia, it's extremely flat hierarchies, and it's looking for money all the time. Right. Uh, right. Has it changed any since uh, since then? No, not not too much. It sounds like it's uh, gotten worse, to, to be honest. Guys are fighting it, students I, for spare change in the couch cushions at the union. <laughs> well, it, it's just that everything, you know, the the tuitions have gone up, but you know exactly where that money is going is seems to be a great mystery. Uh, I wouldn't say it's you know the money is tight, but certainly there you know there's questioning as to where money's being spent and how it's being spent and encouragement to uh, cut down on extra expenditures where you can and do you need that many graders and do you need that many TAs and you know where, where can we cut uh, spending so there's definitely an emphasis on trying to be uh, fiscally responsible mm-hmm. my school seemed to have a, an emphasis on innovation centers or something that no one could figure out what they did yeah the innovation centers were getting started at my school when I first went back to graduate school and uh, one of the attractions at, at my school was that the innovation centers got to pay a reduced amount of core of, of overhead uh, yes. is down to like 25 percent which was a big deal because the normal was like 40 percent and uh, uh, so so those were going for a while but then uh, they they kind of phased out at my school because the university figured out that they were just losing too they were losing and I put that in quotes too much money because <laughs> they weren't getting their you know their full cut out of it He's and right. uh, I mean when you look at it uh, in a normal university project, say that you got twenty five k. In this, I'll, this is an example from my from my own uh, experience. I got a twenty five thousand dollar grant from uh, Bell Northern to have a master's degree student work on a project, and uh, out of that twenty five k, the university takes ten k, which goes away somewhere. Uh, it, it's it's termed overhead, and again, put quotes around that. <laughs> But uh, so there's 10k gone. So you got 15 left. You need 12 for the student, and at least you three left over. And you get out of that, you got to pay for your secretary and some other things. Uh, <laughs> so there's really no money left over after that for for me to do anything except to advise a student. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and we used to say, well, we're giving 10k to the university for overhead. How come it doesn't pay for uh, for the uh, for the secretaries and and stuff like that? And uh, we were told to shut up <laughs> <laughs> because it doesn't. Okay, yeah. <laughs> right. that money goes into the general fund for the state, and then where it goes from there, nobody has any clue. Right. So, so Dave, you'd be a good one to understand this. Is that uh, a lot of the reviews that you find online where talk where people talk about an academic versus a industry career usually talk about going and working in an industry for a large company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly there's a there can be a huge difference between working for a small company or a big company right. or working for yourself, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, you've done. Mm-hmm. So typically, it's common to hear from the industry side, you know, why are the, the academics so insular? 
and from academia, why is business so short-sighted? Mm-hmm. And both both sides point their fingers at one another. And I think that, that we can talk a little bit about what I'd like to do is talk in this episode some about the career path for an academic and, and the types of things that one uh, goes through as an academic, as a professor. Mm-hmm. But But I wanted to start by discussing the similarities between starting out as a as a professor, as an assistant professor, and being an entrepreneur in that I think there's a lot of things that are similar uh, as you start out uh, down those two career paths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they are very similar in that you start off each of those paths without knowing what the hell that you're doing. And, <laughs> and, and there's nobody, not, not really that many people that are going to tell you that. Uh, when, yeah. I, when I started as a professor, I had you know, no idea how to get a grant from anybody, how to, how to manage, uh, you know, graduate students. None of that stuff was, I mean, it's, I've heard that it's better now that they do have orientation type, uh, of programs at universities now to, to bring their uh, faculty up to speed so they know exactly what the, what the infrastructure is like for doing the kinds of things. And so they're not always continually reinventing the wheel. But uh, with, with with me, when I came in, it was like, well, here we are. Go ahead. Go do what you <laughs> want to do. And, and like I said, the hierarchy is very, very flat. There, you know, you've got your department head and then there's you. And that's a direct line, you know, pretty much. You don't have, you don't have like, uh, you know, uh, uh, subsections or anything like that. You you might be involved in an area like semiconductors or something like that, where where there's a group of faculty that all know each other and they all work in the same areas, but they're not. They don't have any supervisory control over each other. They everything goes through their department head, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you you know you start off there. It's like you know you're, you're like standing out on this plane, uh, you know, which is barren, and you see nobody for miles, and you're wondering what direction do I head off and and, uh, you know, am I going to go find an oasis and am I going to live or am I going to go wander off in the wrong direction in the desert and am I going to die? Uh, <laughs> right. So, you know, it's, it's, it, it's very, you know, it's a very free, uh, environment in terms of many times what you want to work on, but it's, and you have quite a bit of control, but, uh, you know, it's like being an entrepreneur that, uh, you don't have anybody to back you up. So if you let the ball go between your legs, it rolls all the way to the outfield wall and there's nobody that's going to get that for you. Right. So you, you've got to be, uh, you know, on the ball all the time. And if you're not, then, you know, too bad for you. Yeah. So, so let's start with the, with the money side. Mm-hmm. So as 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 you get hired on as a professor, you go through lots of interviews, and and uh, hopefully they like you, and they they say, guess what, Dave, uh, we're going to bring you on as a an assistant professor, and uh, so here is a salary, and they give you a salary, and I don't know whether you had a startup package or not to support your research no. to get going, but no. but but sometimes they'll give you a certain amount of money. Uh, to pay for grad students or mm-hmm. to pay for equipment or, you know, lab equipment to get you going. They're making an investment in you mm-hmm. because they, they know you're going to bring in these dollars. Right. My thesis advisor had a startup cost. That's what my budget came out of. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and, and so, so you have the, you have your salary, you have startup money to, which is usually to last you for maybe two, maybe three years to get mm-hmm. you going. Right. And then go. So, so, that you know your salary is paying you mm-hmm. how dave do you get money to do research well first of all i didn't have a salary i was a soft money guy i was 
I was called a research professor, which meant that I didn't have hard money backing me up. Oh, okay. Which means that I had to bring in contracts to pay my salary. So, you know, when I first started off, I actually started off for a year kind of like as a postdoc and then transitioned into faculty and um, uh, worked with a professor there and got some things going with him uh, in some areas that, that I had been working on at, uh, for my uh, for my thesis and um, so I, I developed some uh, – I, I started working through uh, one of the centers in the university that was concentrated in signal processing and had some uh, – <clears throat> excuse me, some uh, industry contacts there and also got some funding through there for, for some projects and also started working with a group of professors there that were in the area of neural networks and we started to – uh, develop uh, ideas in that area and, and send out grant proposals and things like that. Although that was a very uh, hard area to get any any money in, most of it was coming through industry and very little was coming through um, through NSF or, or DARPA or places like that. And um, then, in order to make ends meet, you know, maybe teach a class or two here and there if you have to, and and things like that. Right. So when you guys would get these, or when you get these projects, you know, you say you're signing on for different areas. Are they mm-hmm. long-term projects, or is it like some company needs you to do some research into a certain area and report back in two, three months? Uh, no, they're 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 longer they're longer term. They're like they're like a year minimum, and then okay. you go you go forward from there, and hopefully it develops into something that that has uh, some lifetime to it. Um, but it, but in the area, you know, in the time frame I was in, which like was like 1990, say we we had a recession back in 1991 or so, and uh, a lot of the money was drying up. Uh, but uh, the money was still, you know, pretty dry even before that, and even after that, uh, you know, it was nothing like the uh, NASA days, you know, when. Uh, the government would just would just throw money around by the by the wheelbarrow full to anybody that had any kind of idea in the in a university, and uh, that's that was you know one of the generational conflicts at the time I was in there is that the older faculty had grown up in an era when money was plentiful and they had their research con- contacts within the funding agencies all settled out and they went on year after year after year getting money without ever having to really do a whole lot of proposing, you know, it yeah, was kind of like too many results. Yeah. They, 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 uh, they, they could go ahead and they had their track record and they, they, they could survive on their track record because they knew the people of the funding agencies and the funding agencies knew them. And so that was the way it went. And then uh, when you come in, then you don't have that infrastructure and there isn't that infrastructure to tap into anymore. There's, there's no more, there's no more real money in the funding agencies to, to go ahead and, and develop, you know, unknowns and, uh, so you you pretty much got to strike out and find money wherever you can. A lot of that is is from industry and uh, and whatever you can pick up, you know, from the from the government, which at that time wasn't much. Right. So so a lot of the uh, the professors that I know are constantly putting out grant proposals mm-hmm. 
And, and so the story is you need to have like f- at least five proposals in the, in the mix at any one time, mm-hmm. uh, because your the hit rate is normally in the 10 to 15, if you're really good, 20% range. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you need to be hitting these things, you know, on a regular basis. And those got to, and, and those have to be big grants too. Those can't, you can't be doing 25K grants for that. You've got to, you've got <laughs> to be. Not any sort of serious student support you have to no, maintain. No, you've got to, you've got to be up and, you know, Three hundred, four hundred thousand dollar range on each one of those, just to get right. anything going at all. And yeah, uh, and again, this is why the university gives the startup money mm-hmm, uh, because right. the numbers I hear are more like fifty percent. They're mm-hmm. going to take their cut mm-hmm. right off the top. Oh, it's fifty percent now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the way the mafia works. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think there's yeah. a lot of similarities between being like a startup uh, in, in that you have to go out and you know you have no as an entrepreneur. You may not have any really track record, at mm-hmm. least as a business owner. Right. And so you're going out and begging for every job you can get anything. Give me mm-hmm. anything so I can prove what I can do. And I think right. uh, my sense is it's that way for uh, starting professors is give me any grant. I don't care. Just let me do something mm-hmm. that I can write a paper on it right. and, and uh, prove I can deliver. Right. And the bad thing, uh, getting back to having to have four or five proposals out there at a time, is my – feedback on on many proposals when I was doing it was that you almost had to have the research done when you sent in your proposal. Uh, you you almost had to have guaranteed results that were ready to go. Uh, and it's like the proposal wasn't even, I mean, the, the funding that you would get wasn't even for what you were proposing. It was just to fund you for the next thing that you could then write a proposal for later on. So yeah. if I was, yeah. you know, in the neuro, you know, doing a neural net architecture of some kind, I'd better pretty much have that thing squared away at the time I wrote the proposal and know what the results are going to be to get any money. And then I could use that money for whatever the next idea is. And so that's a lot of, uh, you know, that's kind of an ass backwards way to do it. And it's a lot of uh, strain, especially if you're coming out as a, as somebody that's new in an area that you, you know, you don't have any, uh, any prepackaged um, um, research you can just throw out there that you know to get money for it. Yeah, so, uh, God help you if your equipment costs are high or something too. You oh, can't yeah. just simulate everything. Oh yeah, I mean I was lucky that I, I I worked in an era where where it was the majority of it was uh, you know simulation of systems and computers and things like that. I mean the semiconductor guys, you can't get off you can't get off square one on semiconductors for less than a million bucks. Yeah. Yeah, there's um. I don't know, have you guys ever heard of uh, Prof Gears, that website? Mm-hmm. Um, right. And guy, I think his name's Keith Ellison or so, something like that. He's uh, okay. a new tenure track professor up in Rochester, New York, and he's got mm-hmm. his own podcast. He does uh, academic tracks, and he talks a lot about this and just trying to get funding and how you're using previous grants to fund new research and mm-hmm. you're writing the proposal for the research you did after the fact, and it's it sounds like a nightmare. Mm-hmm. It's it's quite a uh, laborious task to write these grant proposals. Mm, oh yeah, it's it, it's not something you whip up in an afternoon. The, you, you'll spend days and more likely weeks and months uh, writing up one of these grant rep- oh, proposals. Yeah. I mean, back in uh, back in uh, like eighty nine or so, I think a group of us faculty got together uh, to write a uh, neural networks proposal, and, and it was going to go to DARPA. 
Now, DARPA money is the money that everybody wants. There's, you want DARPA money first. You'll take NSF money after that. And then everything after that, you know, is, is kind of like second, you know, it, it, rightly or wrongly, it's looked upon as, as second tier. You want your DARPA or your NSF money. Mm-hmm. And we, at DARPA was just starting to put some funds, we heard, into neural networks. They're going to have like a $10 million uh, fund for that. And, uh, Gosh, we worked on that proposal for, I don't know, at least six months. And, uh, and, uh, DARPA just was, uh, was, uh, dragging their heels about ever, you know, ever even calling for a proposal, you know, a call for proposals to get that out. So we were always scanning, trying to find in the Federal Register when they were going to call for proposals. And, uh, and it was always this mystery about what DARPA was going to do with neural networks at that time. We knew, and we knew the program director whose name was, uh, I think Monica Lamb and she never appeared in public anywhere. But, <laughs> but I heard that one time she gave a talk at a neural network conference and I didn't attend it, but some of my uh, colleagues did. And they said she gave a talk about something about probably about DARPA and what their plans were. And they they said that after the talk was over, that she stepped away from the podium and everybody in the audience just rushed her, (laughs) (laughs) trying to get the inside track about what was, you know, what was going on and how they could how they could get some money out of DARPA. Put the magic buzzword in the proposal. Really? I mean, we even went to visit our our senator to, uh, you know, try to get some get an inside track on this. And, uh, you know, that was the extent to. You know, we were willing willing to go to to try to to try to get our foot in the door somehow, and, and in the end, it all tur- it turns out to give most of the money to you know companies like Lockheed or or what have you to uh, you know go to their labs and, and and do the research, and then there's a there's a small amount that goes out to the universities, mostly the the common names that you would expect. So uh, there wasn't much chance of us sort of getting anything from that. But you know you gotta go. You know you gotta you gotta try because you you know it's like they say you you don't get a hundred percent of what you don't go after. <laughs> right, right. And and we should mention that uh, the, the these two funding agencies here in the United States, NSF is the National Science Foundation, mm-hmm. uh, which seems I believe is the largest uh, group giving money for basic research. Right. And then DARPA is the was it defense defense advanced research project uh, or is it Advanced Research Projects Agency. Yeah. Yeah. Advanced Research Projects Agency. And so they're the arm of the uh, U.S. Defense Department uh, that is trying to develop new technologies that obviously will be used eventually, they hope, by the Defense Department. Yeah. Although when you really look at them, they're, they're, they take a good long-term view of the money that they give out and they, they tend to foster relationships with the researchers that they fund, and it it turns out it, it turns out to be uh, almost a, a lot better deal to get in with them, at least at the time that I'm talking about, which is a quarter century ago. But uh, yeah, that was why everybody wanted DARPA money because once you got in with them, it was like uh, you know it became much easier all of a sudden. Yeah, it's, it's like sticking an IV into a vein. You know, blood's going to be coming out of that thing no matter you know, no matter what you do. So you just had to sit there and be ready for it. <laughs> Right. So, so we've talked a little bit about the, the challenges of getting money, uh, when you start as a new professor. What about the challenges of getting help? That is, how do you come up with 
grad students to do work for you because you're, you'll be too busy writing grant proposals to be doing the work yourself. Mm-hmm. You leave a box of pizza out in front of your office. <laughs> it's like that uh, the cartoon trap with a stick in a box and you yank the stick out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, the, uh, the way that it happened at my school was that uh, the, the students would come in, you know, say during the summertime, you know, the, the, the beginning of the semester is coming up. And they would, you know, tour around through the, you know, through the, through the various uh, areas of specialty within my department. And you would get a chance to pitch to them and see if they were interested in what you were doing and uh, uh, if you were interested in what they could do. And, uh, you know, hopefully you'd have some money there that you could actually promise to uh, promise to uh, pay them. And that was a big incentive for a lot of students because, uh, you know, if money's tight, sometimes they're interested in somebody, but he doesn't have money and you do. So, so you all of a sudden look a whole lot better. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you try to, you try to, you pick your students from whoever you could get, you could get to come by. And, uh, you know, it's just like picking employees. Uh, it's a real, it's a real grab. Bag. It's just, you can't tell if a student is going to be a good student or a bad student just from just from what you can see in his transcripts or even from talking with them. Some of the some of the worst looking students turn out to be the very best, you know, grad students. And some of the ones that come in that look stellar turn out to be complete duds. Hmm. I mean, great, especially grades are the worst are almost the worst um, discriminator between the good and the bad grad students. You got to have good grades to stay in school, but uh, you know, just because you're a 4.0 doesn't really mean you're, you know, doesn't mean you're better than the guy that's a 3.5 or you know, even a 2.5. Yeah. And, and so what, what made for a good grad student? You know, somebody that, somebody that was interested in what they were doing and, uh, was was able to see areas to go into and and discriminate an area that was that was that had low potential for return from an area that had high potential for return. I mean, I saw one grad student for another professor that uh, spent you know that did his thesis on parallelizing the beginning portion of an algorithm. There was this computer algorithm for. I don't know, it was something to do with uh, optimizing something. I can't remember the details, but there's this beginning phase of it where you or where you go through and pre-process all the data to get it ready for the main stage that comes along later. Mm-hmm. And he was parallelizing that pre-processing step. But it turns out that pre-processing is 10% of what's going on. So if you parallelize it and get it down to zero, you're still only saving 10% on the whole algorithm. And that wasn't a very profitable way to, to spend your, your thesis, you know, the money for that student to do that. And, you know, a good grad student would have pointed out to the professor who never should have done that in the first place, sort of pointed out that, you know, the best I'm going to be able to do for you is 10% improvement. You know, do you want to spend your, your money on that? So, uh, right. you know, a good grad student is as much of a, is, is, 
as much uh, involved in the direction of the research as the prof- professor is in terms because the professor can't be involved in all the details of it because he's writing four or five damn grants every semester. <laughs> <laughs> so he's counting, he's counting on that student to be, you know, to be his like a scout in many ways about what's going on out there. What, what should I be looking at? What's the, what are the important issues that are going on here that you're finding as you go through this, all the details? Yeah. I, I think that's that's one aspect that students don't often fully appreciate is that I mean they've taught been always taught to respect, you know, their their instructors, the professors. Mm-hmm. And I think they come in with the thought that, well, the professor already has this figured out and they're just testing me, right? Mm-hmm. They're assigning me this research right. uh, just to give me something to do and and it and not realizing that no, if it's research no one's done this before. Right. That's the the purpose of research, and and so the the student can have a a great impact on on the direction that that research uh, proceeds. And you know, it's it, they're in a position similar to uh, to what I was when I first became a faculty member. Their their previous experience doesn't apply anymore. They you know the, now they're out in this plane, you know, and they've got to wander around and try to find you know a way to survive out there, and uh, they've been trained to take courses and to do coursework, which is all, you know, there is a solution to this problem that I've given you. And now they're in an area where there may not be a solution to this problem, or if there is a solution, nobody knows what it is. And that's right. a completely different thing. It, it pulls in completely different intellectual faculties that you need to have in order to do that, including the ability to, you know, keep your ego intact, even if you can't find the solution for something. Oh, yeah. That that's the uh, well. We'll get in a little later. We'll get into the grind of the PhD, but that is certainly the, the hardest point. Is you spend all that time getting yourself into the middle of it, and then you can't figure out how you're ever going to extract yourself from right. that process. Um, okay, so we've talked a little bit about uh, the money and the employees. Uh, another similarity between being a entrepreneur and being a beginning professor is the is the amount of work, the number of hours one has to work in order to pull things off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and in both cases, it's pretty much nonstop. You have no time for anything else because uh, you're paddling with everything you've got trying to survive the rapids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, and that's, un, that's really an unfortunate thing. Uh, I mean, that whole, that whole ethos that you had to put a lot of hours in, um, I mean, I when I was a when I was finishing up my thesis, my PhD thesis, uh, I was working about sixty hours a week, and I mean, in the last year, I said, "All right, I'm working sixty hours a week every week. I'm going to get this thing done." I I, I even cut my funding. I said, "My funding is going to end in like April, a year from now." And I said, "All right," and I, and I cut it. And I said, "I don't want any more funding after this because I'm going to be done by then." Yeah, and. uh you know, I kind of had to have that uh, to push me forward. So 60 hours a week. And then one week I said, I'm going to work 80. I'm going to I'm going to see if I could do 80. And that 80 might as well have been, you know, I might as well have worked 50 or 40 because that 80 was just full of just trash. Uh, yeah. You know, you, you could, you know. You, yeah. After you hit a certain point, it's just pointless. After you hit a certain point, you're actually going backwards. You know, it's like you're moonwalking and you're, you're, you're actually going <laughs> farther away from where you thought you were getting to. And, 
And, and I suspect that, you know, with entrepreneurs and, and faculty members that we might get more if we just expected less. And, yeah. and, uh, you set the bar low. <laughs> yeah. And, and, but there's, you know, but we're so metrics oriented that we don't have any real wisdom anymore about is this guy doing a good job or not? We, we look at hours and we look at how many citations he has and how many proposals has he put out and, you know, all this and how many students is he graduating? And, uh, and those are easy to measure. And so that's, kind of what you get you get you get those easy to measure types of things but it doesn't really necessarily point towards quality are you getting are you getting the very best out of this guy would he would he uh maybe not develop so many uh you know 50 percent ideas and maybe have more 90 percent ideas if he just had to come up with fewer of those ideas if he was able to spend more time on those ideas and, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, I mean, the, the, uh, the Zeitgeist right now that's going on in academia and, and in fact, it was going on when I was there is that, that, you know, it's all numbers, make the numbers, you know, and like, uh, I read a quote from Deming, uh, last, last week that said, if you set the numbers, the manager will make those numbers, even if he has to destroy the company in order to do it. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's kind of what faculty members and everybody else will do. If you say this is the number that means success, they'll make that number, you know, whether it really is a success or not. Right. Well, so let's, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the number game in academia. Uh, <laughs> so if you just, if, if you decide you wanted to be an academic, the, the first thing you have to do pretty much is you have to go earn a PhD. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was not always the case that engineering professors had PhDs in the, right. uh, in the, in, in the thirties and forties, yeah. you, you were an experienced professor. You came in, but, but, uh, after the Grinter report in 54 and this, you know, we had to be more scientific and we had to have more rigorous math background, uh, then the shift was made and you pretty much, you know, mm-hmm. you had to have a PhD in order right. to be, uh, to teach at a, at a large university. Right. And so go ahead. Yeah. I mean, and, and then you had a bed accreditations and things that come in after that. And, you know, same, you know, same deal. They look at the quality of your faculty and they judge your quality by the number of PhDs and, you know, number of publications, blah, blah, blah. You know, all that stuff comes in. Right. So if you are a PhD, um, in engineering, it, it, in the past, to be more traditional, you could immediately hire into a an assistant professorship. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's in other fields, especially the sciences, it was very common to go as a postdoc. That right. is, you didn't get to jump immediately from a PhD into a professorship. You had to go spend a you know a mm-hmm. two to five year period of being a postdoc, right. uh, which meant that you were hired into another professor's group, and this professor would allow you to work in their research group. Uh, in sort of return, you wrote papers and mm-hmm. they got to put their name on the paper. So if you put out two or three more papers, they got two or three more publications, right. but they, they were funding you. They were, they were helping pay your salary. Yeah. That's, that's very similar to what my first year was like. Okay. But, so it's uh, kind of like the internship to, uh, you know, a graduate student. Yeah. It's <laughs> kind of like that, except internships usually aren't paid and postdocs are, Kind of paid. Sort of paid. <laughs> sort of paid. It looks like money, but it's not. <laughs> it's just enough to make you think it's worth it if you don't count all the extra hours. Yeah, just enough to keep you alive to suffer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Right. So in the end, you're after publications, right? And so, right. you know, it's, it's sort of understood by the time you finish up your PhD research that generally you're expected to have at least one or two papers mm-hmm. underneath right. your belt. Right. You've done your postdoc and depending on how many years you go at it, but you know, you're one or two papers a year mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can roll into being an assistant professor. Right. And, and now, and now the clock starts. Is an assistant professor, you have, uh, five to six years to make tenure or not make tenure. Right. And, you know, and this is for those in, in industry, this is a little hard for people to understand, but you hire in and they basically say, we, you, we may or may not want you as part of our group, but we'll give you five years to prove yourself. Mm-hmm. So go work like mad, uh, <laughs> uh, write as many papers as you possibly can, bring in as much money as you possibly can, mentor as many students as you possibly can. And at the five year, Usually it's, it's right at the five year mark. Yeah. Uh, sometimes six. We'll we'll decide whether we we want to make you part of our group. Sounds like some Tom Sawyer bullshit right well, here. Then after they say yes, you go poof. You turn into a pile of shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so, that's the deal. I mean, that's the deal. So tenure is kind of an interesting concept, uh, and uh, perhaps you did. Did you get tenure? I I left in the year that I was up for tenure. Okay, and I specifically left. Well, I I left because I, I don't know if I would have got tenure or not, but uh, I was afraid that if I did get it, I'd just be there forever because okay. you know you got tenure. Hey, why should I leave? I'm a success, and put quotes around that one. You know, right. so yeah. So so, and I am a continuing lecturer, so I am not a in a tenure i'm i'm not tenure track so right. i cannot in my position uh, get tenure right so every so, now and then they they walk a dog by your office and have him pee on you <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> oh so you're not getting the full deal then <laughs> right uh he didn't write that grant yet yeah so so uh can we can we explain tenure and and what exactly that means what what that what benefits that has and uh, exactly who is the granting party of tenure? Yeah. I mean, tenure, is, tenure to, when most people, people hear it, means you can't be fired. Um, what it means is the university has taken essentially a lifelong commitment or a career-long commitment to you that you will have money and a job at that university in perpetuity until you decide to retire if that's what you want. And it was granted, you know, it started, I guess they started granting tenure in, in what, like the Middle Ages or something mm-hmm. like that, you know, as a way of insulating faculty from uh, f- keeping them from being um, silenced, you know, by by politicians and administrators and things. They could talk about whatever they wanted and have any opinions that they wanted and not have to fear that their job would be taken away from them at the university because they were granted tenure and they were unfireable. So it was, I guess, looked upon as a means of protecting them uh, from, you know, common everyday concerns and they could go ahead and be free thinkers about everything. And, uh, you know, that's not a big worry for most engineering professors. You know, they're not, they're not exactly out there, you know, uh, trying to overthrow society with radical ideas or anything like that. But, uh, you know, tenure is still around. It's still the tradition. And, uh, you earn that by, you know, having a solid research record 
and um, right. you know that they keep you around because that also they think well he's pretty much paying for himself and a whole lot of this stuff as well so you know it's he's like an investment now he's starting to pay off so we're going to keep him yeah now, now my understanding is and i may have this wrong because i'm not tenure track and have not investigated too much but i believe that tenure is granted not by the university but by the school mm-hmm. or college and, and therefore the idea would be that if uh uh, if the school of mechanical engineering uh, granted someone tenure, and then for some reason the school of mechanical engineering went poof, mm-hmm. the school of electrical engineering would not be obligated to honor that. You're right. That sounds that, that sounds right to me. I, yeah. I, although I don't know all the fine level details of that, but uh, that does sound right to me. But but basically, what it is 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 the other people in the club are saying we want you as a member of the club. Right. Right. <laughs> right exactly. It's a yeah, it's a very elaborate hazing ritual. <laughs> right. So so once you get tenure traditionally, and I don't know if this is always the case, but at least uh where I am it, it seems to always be the case that if you at the same time you get tenure you're promoted from assistant professor mm-hmm. to associate professor. Right. Yes, exactly. Okay, it but but this goes back to the long work hours is that if you don't make tenure you know, you're they ask you to leave. Yeah. Right? You, you spent you five start or six over then somewhere else too. Either start over somewhere else or go get a job outside of the university. <laughs> True yeah. story. <laughs> yeah. So so then you become an a, a, an associate professor. Uh, you now have tenure, so they can't fire you. But uh, there's still another rank above you mm-hmm. to to uh, incentivize you to get you to to keep pushing forward and and publishing papers and bringing in research money. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can get the rank of professor. Yeah, or full and professor. Full professor. Yeah, and and it's seen, again. I don't know if there's any you know hidden rules, a, a secret book that I've not seen, but it seems to me that that again happens at you know say eight to ten years yeah. after you've gotten yeah. uh, your associate professorship. I would say that's a that's a good time frame for it. Although uh, since I never you know went into that, obviously went to that level, I'm not sure what the perks are of being the full professor. I mean, uh, obviously, you have more political control, maybe within the department, but I'm not sure what the what what they really give you that's over and above materially that 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 an associate professor does not get. Right. I, I, there's there seems to be at least again at the university I'm at there seems to be a financial reward for mm-hmm. having been promoted to mm-hmm. uh, full professor, but I other than that I don't know as you your obligations or your duties or your responsibilities yeah. really change all that much. Yeah. I would, uh, I would imagine if you were an associate professor and you were bringing in, you know, 10 million bucks a year, well, number one, they'd probably try to make you a full professor. But if, <laughs> if you were, right. if, if you were bringing in 10 million, 10 million bucks a year, I just would assume that they would, you know, pay you more as well because they still want to keep that gravy train going. And they, you know, <laughs> they got somebody that's, that's produced and they're going to keep them. And uh, right. that's where you see like bidding wars between universities for for different faculty members and things like that. Not that I've ever been involved in that. <laughs> Nonsense! I'm sure everyone's beating down the door to get you to work for them. Mm, absolutely right. <laughs> doesn't that doesn't bother me anymore? That's not an area I'm in. <laughs> I have no more concerns <laughs> about that. Right. I did. I did have. I did have one interesting interaction with the university system after I left the university. <laughs> have I, I? I may have told this story before. If I, if if you've heard it before, just tell me. Uh, 
in, in 19, I, I had published a paper, or I thought I had back in 1988 about something in neural networks, and I, I had sent it off to a journal, and they had gone ahead and sent me a letter to say, yeah, we're going we're gonna to publish this. And I never heard anything back from them about that. So in 94, when I was out of the university, I got a call from a guy uh, who was, you know, a, an editor for this journal. And he says, gosh, I just took over being an editor here. And I really want to apologize. I was going through these boxes of papers that the old editor had left. And, you know, they were just lying around. And I found this paper in there and it had your name on it and it had been accepted for publication. But he never, you know, actually scheduled <laughs> it to be published. She said, I'd like to I'd like to write this wrong. And I'll put that in quotes as well. I'd like to write this wrong by publishing this paper. And I said, geez, a Louise, you know, I'm, you just, I'm out. all these years later. Exactly. I said, you know, I'm out of the university, you know, having another publication is going to make a damn bit of difference to me. Journal pages are pretty precious things. You know, you, you don't get all that many of them. You might, and you don't want to waste, you know, you want to put the papers out there that are going to mean something and to somebody's career and also to the, to the field itself. And I said, this paper six years old. It's already been presented at conferences and everything else. You know, it's not going to make a big deal, you know, a bit of difference. And I said, plus there were a couple of professors that already were made into laughing stocks because they had published, finally published a paper that was 10 years old waiting for it to be published and they had insisted that it had been published and then everybody laughed at them for insisting that their 10 year old paper be published i said <laughs> i really not like to leave i wouldn't like to leave academia on quite that note if you don't mind <laughs> and the guy was just adamant about it you know they had to oh, oh we got to publish this thing you know it's it's uh, you know it's our duty so, and then i said oh, okay and then lower the boom on me well okay now we want you to proofread and we want you to proof the paper after we typeset it and everything and i said oh geez you know I, I, have, to do now, man. I have to do real work including real work for this thing that doesn't mean anything you know and so i have proofread it and they published it and absolutely nothing happened and you know just as i suspected you know nobody cared and that was the end of it. But it's just, you know, right. the funny things that go on in academia that seem so important when you're in academia that seem so trivial and minor when you get out of it. It's like, you know, it's this cloistered world with all these very strange rules in it. And, and uh, you know, when you go through the looking glass and look at it from the other side, it looks completely different. Anyway, that, that, that is that is kind of a great uh, gig that the publishing companies have, right? Oh so, God! So yeah. the, the 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 academics, the professors, uh, write the papers. Mm -hmm. Then the academics review the papers yes. and evaluate the papers, mm -hmm. and and they serve as in order to promote their academic career, they serve as editors on the papers where they coordinate all the things, mm -hmm. contact the authors, mm -hmm. take take care of all that, mm -hmm. and. Um, and then the the publishing company just rakes up the money for year <laughs> after year, and never they never release the paper to the public because it's all behind a paywall. Yeah. Now, I mean, there are, are more and more open source journals, and so that's changing somewhat over yeah. time. But yeah. but certainly that has been a uh, yeah that has been a money making opportunity that I never quite understood is why why the academics were willing to work for free, mainly because of the. Uh, you know, it's something to put on your curricula vitae. You know, you, you're you're an editor for this so and so journal, or you know, and if it's an important journal, that's an important part of uh, you getting tenure. And uh, I mean, I used right. I used to be an associate editor for the IEEE transactions on neural networks, and uh -huh. you know, you're continually battling 
to have people review papers and they would just get them and they would not review them. It would take you months to get anybody to review something. But then when they turn their papers in, man, I got to have this thing reviewed fast, you know, and they're calling me up, you know, hey, have you reviewed the paper yet? And I say, no, because I'm sending it to the same people who you screwed, but not reviewing their paper, you know? Right. So they're dragging their heels. So, (laughs) right. And then, you know, and then they, they play the games where, oh, I can't, you know, I can't, I can't, uh, accept this paper unless, you know, oh, you need a citation to my paper and the citations from your paper. So it's all the cross citation that has to go on. And that's one of the things that's been going on in academia much worse now than when I was there. You know, the, the ranking, the, there's some score that they give you for how many times your papers are, are, um, referenced by other papers. Uh, it's an importance ranking of some kind. I can't remember the name of it. There's an H score. Yeah. H score. There you go. Yeah. And everybody, at, when you review a paper, you, you make damn sure that everybody puts your papers and its references in their papers so that your H score can go up. And, uh, you know, like, it's like, like cloud a, score, but people actually care about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like I said, you know, if you give people a metric, they're going to do whatever they can to meet the metric, regardless of what they have to tear up in the process to make it happen. Just because it's not a good idea doesn't mean it's not a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm, H score, yeah, that's yeah, that's Eesh. hopefully hopefully getting as bad a reputation as as uh, P values now. <laughs> Right. So, uh, Dave, you had a chance to, uh, since you did work at, uh, was it was Bell Labs mm-hmm. right. early on. So you've, you've been in, in big industry as well as, as running your own business, right. which is sort of the, the smaller, uh, side of it. So maybe we can talk some about the differences between working for a larger company, the more traditional, uh, industrial route right. and, and academia. Uh, so I guess the, the biggest difference I think is, is the, uh, the profit motive, uh, in, and and that's a little different for research mm-hmm. facility, but but you know in academia it is is this the truth? Is it is it advancing knowledge? And in at least my experience in business, it's always been can I make money at this? So how how does that differ the 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 positions of being an industrial engineer or being in a, a uh, academic engineer? Well, I mean I'll I'll disagree with you a little bit about academia being concerned about whether it's the truth or not okay because calling because uh i mean some people you know are concerned about the truth they want to get their papers out they want it to be right yeah and uh but i mean you get into the upper levels of the university uh their only their concern is numbers and their main number concern is money and Mm -hmm. uh and everything is everything is is rotates around that money number you know are you getting you know i i went through when i was at university they were going through a little bit of a change in attitude you know they were starting to starting to look at the uh students as like you know as like products that came out of the university or or maybe looking at them as customers of the university Mm -hmm. but my my feeling was always that the, the university looked at students as a as a byproduct of the university as as something that kind of fell out of the university while they were trying to do something and oh yeah look we're producing these students over here uh, let's shovel those out of the way there and then and, and go about doing what we're doing they uh-huh. you know they want they, they want universe they want university I mean they want they want research projects to bring money in they want 
you know, they want sports teams to bring money in, uh, and, uh, and they want to essentially not sell an education there. What they're in the business of is selling certifications of an education. They, They, you know, if they could, if they could find a way to have students show up and they could just hand them a certification and everybody would believe that certification was, was a certification that the student actually knew how to do something. They'd be very happy to do that. And, you know, <laughs> there, so I, you know, I, we, on the outside, you know, if you don't have any real experience with it, you tend to look at the university as being all, you know, they, they talk about the ivory tower, but it's the ivory tower that's coated with, you know, enough garbage and gunk on it that uh, if you look inside there, there's a lot of bad stuff going on. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, my, in my opinion is probably a little bit different from yours, but then I'm a cynical old man and, uh, you know, I, that's just the way I am. <laughs> I, I, or, or maybe I'm just a frustrated, a frustrated optimist. There we go. Mm. Call pragmatic. There. That sounds nicer. Maybe. <laughs> Right. No, but so, if, if I was pragmatic, I'd be trying to get something done, and that means I'd be smoothing the university to try to get some true, money out true. of it. Trying to play the game or work yeah. the system. Yeah, work the system. Right. So, so how how about uh, you know? So in a business, then uh, beyond the profit motive, typically uh, you mentioned early on the the hierarchy mm-hmm. of a of business, and I think that is certainly true. That is, you know, the projects I would work on. There'd be somebody, you know, a, a VP or somebody would say, Hey, you know, we're going to have this initiative. We're going to develop this product. And then there'd be your manager. Mm-hmm. And then you'd, you know, you'd have sub managers and, right. and, but you had a lot of people all pushing for this big project, you know, and, and this could take six months. This could take a year. This could take six years, but, mm-hmm. but it was a fairly big effort, a lot of money, everybody moving in their same direction. And so you have a lot of camaraderie, you know, of people moving. You know, mm-hmm. uh, whereas where it in academia, my sense is you you are the professor. You're doing your research in your little area. Maybe you cooperate with some other professors or a few other professors at the university. But at most, you have three, four, five, seven grad students involved. I mean, you know, you're all going to fit in a, a conference right. room. Right. Whereas in business, you know, you there's a definite pecking order. Who's in charge? Who's mm-hmm. who's next in charge? And it's it's a big effort. So, how how does that change the work environment? Well, even in even in the university, you have the pecking order. There's always there's always going to be a pecking order, no matter what. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's not as officially recognized as it as it is within uh, within a company. But uh, and and yeah, you do have smaller groups in the university, but it, but the groups fight with each other so fiercely somebody <laughs> somebody said that never it, there is no place uh, other than a university where so much anger and energy is spent fighting over just so little i mean right. people are battling for a closet where they can put their research uh, put their uh, some research equipment into i mean full scale battles you know going up to the department and trying to trying to sway him one way or the other because space in the university is so precious but uh and uh when you're in you know when you talk about the company you talk about everybody pointing in the same direction everybody's you know heading down the field and commonality of purpose and right i mean i wish that were true uh <laughs> but you know unfortunately the the i mean i would i was on projects where you know the groups would fight 
amongst themselves. I mean, between the the groups would fight each other in terms right. of trying to get access to resources and and just generally not liking each other because one group would have a requirement that would force the other group to do something. You know, we we had a human factors group that was always coming in with some jackass idea about how things had to be, and they didn't have to figure out a way to put it into the code. But they had to have that idea accepted because that was a way to for them to show value on the project. If none of their ideas were accepted, then maybe they weren't actually a worthwhile group to have, and maybe they should all be fired. So, and you know, the more yeah. ideas they're accepting, and and they did have some good ideas. It's not to say they don't, but uh, but every it's like everybody in that group had to have at least one idea accepted in order to prove their value, and and they could just drive you nuts. And, uh, so you fight with, you fight with the groups in your own project, you fight with other projects about resources or, you know, are, are they going to get more money for PCs or are you going to get the money? Are they going to get that new room that's opened up or are you going to get it? Uh, you know, and, and the budgeting, budgeting that goes on. Uh, I mean, I had, I had one project I was on where I went for six months using the same, uh, the same uh, printer ribbon in my printer that I used for printing off listings so I could go through and do the code. I had had to use the same ribbon for six months because my group didn't have any money. <laughs> and I was pretty pissed off after a while that, you know, other groups were buying oscilloscopes and things like that, and I couldn't afford a printer ribbon. So, right. uh, you know, there's this scrabbling around for resources and who's important and who's not, who gets mentioned uh, when the director of the lab gives his, you know, yearly speech and who doesn't get mentioned. So, uh, yeah, there's there's camaraderie within the group. It's kind of like the camaraderie of, of soldiers that are in a foxhole together. So in your immediate group, you hang right. together pretty tight and you, you all want to try to, you know, you want to be able to trust each other and you all want to be able to help each other move along. But uh once you get out of that immediate foxhole, then, uh, then it, you know, the, the relationships can get a little strained there. Yeah. But yeah, it, it, but like I said before, it is nice to have people that can watch your back and, uh, and are there to, are there to, uh, make sure the ball doesn't roll between your legs and go all the way to the outfield fence that they're there to catch it and, and help you out when, when you need that. And uh, a good group is like that. If you can get a group that, a group of people that trust each other. But yeah. when, when you have a group of people that stop trusting each other, that's the most hellacious environment in the world to work in. <laughs> that, that that was kind of like some of my work that, that I did later on in, in industry. Uh, some, you know, I got involved in some, some projects with industry that uh, people did not trust each other. And they were always right. going behind each other's back to try to submarine one person or the other. And, uh, just really really toxic uh place to work at yeah not yeah. recommended <laughs> well that's that's certainly you know you can go from company to company and you get a much different culture mm-hmm. and as you mentioned you can go from group to group right exactly. and, and even within the same company in the same department you mm-hmm. know different groups will have a different culture that emerges yeah and and trying to trying to find the right culture is hard and then trying to keep that culture is very hard because if you have a good culture in your group and your group is successful, then, you know, somebody's going to get promoted out of that group or maybe right. several people get promoted out. And then the group changes and then it's not success- successful anymore, maybe because the whole dynamic has changed and because somebody got rewarded, but somebody else didn't. And then somebody's pissed off and 
they're not going to put their best effort out. So, uh, you know, there's, it's, it's hard to keep good groups in industry. It's hard to keep good groups anywhere because there's a natural evolution of people. They want to move up. They want to move on to bigger and better things. And, and, you know, that's not necessarily, that, that means not necessarily staying in the, the little environment you've crafted, no matter how good it is. Yeah. So uh, we talked earlier about how, a, as a beginning professor, you're sort of thrown immediately into the management role. You're you're mm-hmm. you're expected at this point just as soon as you're hired. Right. You're in charge of finances. You're bringing the money. You're in charge right. of hiring employees. You're 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 recruiting and bringing in your grad students. You're actually uh, expected to know something that you're not at all prepared for. Just like when a student comes from undergraduate to graduate, they're you know there they are in an area where they just don't know how to act, and it's the right. same thing. Right now, now in industry, it's 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 almost the complete opposite. Uh, you're not allowed any control over finances early on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not allowed to manage anybody else until you've spent a number of years proving that you know the technical material before you're allowed to. You know, right. typically before you're which, allowed which to, which has absolutely nothing to do with managing anybody. You know, <laughs> the worst managers are sometimes the best engineers. I oftentimes they're the best engineers because. You know, they want to be doing the engineering and, and uh, you know, right. managing people's completely different skill has nothing to do with it. There was but a I, guy in my first co-op who actually left to join a startup from a big Fortune 500 company for that very reason. Was he just, despite his best interest, he kept moving up into management and he got mm-hmm. sick of it. Mm-hmm. He was like, I want to go back to doing the stuff I love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's a, a saying in academia. Um Every graduate student wants to be a professor. Every professor wants to be a graduate student. And <laughs> that's true because the the professor wants to be doing what the graduate student is doing and not having to handle all the proposals and all the accounting and all the this and that and the other. He, it, but he, he wants to be paid professor wages. And the student, uh, the, the graduate student wants to be doing what the professor's doing in terms of getting money. But uh, not necessarily all the things a professor has to be doing that are outside of actually doing the fun research part. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's that, uh, you know, this at Bell Labs, we tried for a while to have what they call the dual ladder, which meant that you could go up the technical ladder or you could go, you could go up the management ladder. So you could become mm-hmm. like a distinguished engineer instead of yeah, becoming yeah, a, a lot of the uh, semiconductor companies have that track still. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure how successful that ever turned out to be. Uh, I, I left before it bore any fruit of Bell Labs and, uh, you know, now Bell Labs doesn't exist. So, you know, uh, whatever success they had with that has been lost, <laughs> I guess. But, uh, yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to build dual tracks like that. And because you can't, you can't just drag all the, uh, the, um, um, prestige or esteem that, uh, managerial position holds. You can't just drag that over and say, all right, now this position over here on this ladder has the same amount of prestige. You know, the prestige has to be built up by the environment, by the, the social environment within the company. And, uh, that does just doesn't start off that way. And it's kind of hard to, hard to feed that and, and make that take off. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely has to be grown, you know, from the ground up at a cultural level, but I, I've seen it. It seems relatively successful in both places that I've worked, mm-hmm. you know, the, the high level fellows or staff scientists mm-hmm. or whatever they're called, you know, they, they get listened to because you've yeah. proved your worth climbing that rung. You know, you said I've had X amount of impact by 
brainstorming this pie in the sky idea that took off or whatever mm-hmm. it happens to be. And but are there as many are there as many slots opened up on that ladder as there are for managers? Uh, I mean, theoretically, there's infinite because you're not managing anybody. Mm-hmm. But um, no, I mean, it definitely tapers off like a pyramid as you get up there. And it's not that they only want limited s- slots. Mm-hmm. From at least this is the impression I get. I could be totally wrong. It's just that it, you know, each rung is progressively harder to climb. You know, right. you're not going to go from middle manager to CEO just because oh, yeah. you want mm-hmm. to, right? Um, but I mean, you know, to, yeah. to get that final fellowship is you. You got to put your time in. You got to really work for it. Is there a rung below fellow? Oh yeah, there's a bunch. You know, oh, okay. it, it, it usually starts off so you get hired as uh, like an apps engineer mm-hmm. and you'll move up to senior apps engineer then mm-hmm. like lead or staff or whatever and then usually about that time is when you can fork off right and and go management or technical track and then you know it's like staff or member of technical staff mm-hmm. and then like second level or senior member of technical okay. staff and blah 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 and then yeah the last rung is fellow or staff mm-hmm. scientist or mm-hmm. whatever do they do they ever uh, do, do you guys have any kind of uh, internal uh, grapevine about who gets paid what so that you can kind of judge whether a technical track uh, position is paying uh, as much as or li- or less than a equivalent position over on the manager's side? Uh, I don't know off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah, all, all, with all the headquarters, you know, uh, mm-hmm. not being in North Carolina, right. that sort of scuttlebutt doesn't really right dominate the halls here although i'm sure some people have talked about it i can't say i know anything yeah we used to have the something at bell labs it was kind of like a green sheet or something like that uh, that would come around every now and then and you could see where your pay ranked against everybody else's at you know at various levels yeah. uh i don't know if the management liked that very much <laughs> there's a website called glass door mm-hmm. that does something very similar mm-hmm. yeah, yeah that, I that mean, depends on user submissions though They're yeah not- do you get do you get a good statistical sample and not a bunch of uh, of hooey that people have put in there? Yeah, and then and depends then it's on the skewed, size of the company. Yeah, and then it's skewed towards you know the the site even too. So if you get everybody from the yep. Bay Area throwing their salaries in there, it's right. going to skew the average higher, right? Than as if you're mm-hmm. in the satellite office, right? But no, I've, I've used Glassdoor. It's when I jumped jobs uh, this summer. It was it was useful throughout the mm-hmm. search to know where to position myself at too what to ask for right you know well, well we kind of went off on one number. on a side track there but. <laughs> yeah well but but so that is interesting is that uh from a salary standpoint generally you're going to do better in industry uh i hear professors talking about you know having giving recommendations for their students who are going off and and hiring you know out of school or as a grad student or a phd immediately hiring out of school and making Considerably more than the professor is making at the university, at least their base salary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then there's usually, you know, usually, <laughs> you know, if you're lucky, profit sharing or stock options or plenty of other ways to make money as well. Yeah, that's why you see a lot of professors now that are doing uh, spinoff businesses with their students, where they can keep their uh, they can keep their professorship, but uh, they can also be on the board of a company that this student is running, and uh, they can they can get their uh, and get the best of both worlds that way because, uh, you know, if uh, being a professor was such a hardship, you wouldn't see people fighting so hard to be professors and staying there for so many years. It's it's not a bad life. Um, that that tenure 
thing, you know, it does have a it does have a way of getting its hold on you. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean it's it's good job security. Yeah, nothing yeah. else. <laughs> I mean you can you can live a you know pretty good life there. Yeah, and you not have and, and you don't have uh, you know you don't have ten people over you that are all raining you know crap down on you at any moment that you've got to go and do this or that or the other. You're, you're kind of in control of your own boat. So uh, and when they go through and they look at job satisfa- satisfaction, the number the number one feature of a job that makes you satisfied with it or not is how much control you have over your day-to-day business. You know, if you have very little, even if you're paid a lot, you still don't like that job very much. Yeah. And Dave, did the, uh, the ability to uh, sort of leave a legacy, you know, attract you or, or was that important when you were in academia? You know, the idea that, that you know your your papers would be published and remembered. I, from your story, I've got an idea mm. what your answer is going to be. But uh, <laughs> you know, or or the fact that you were you know you would be guiding students, and mm. you know you would be known to these students, and you know these students would pass their knowledge on to other students, and you'd be sort of leaving a legacy behind, as opposed to a uh, a corporation where you're sort of a uh, you know just a number, and a, mm. a, a you know your name doesn't really get left from generation to generation. Um, you know, I, it's kind of, it's kind of like asking a butcher if, you know, he, if he went into being a butcher because, you know, he wanted his sausages to be remembered by the people that ate them. <laughs> but then when you go in there and you see how the sausage is made, you say, well, this, this is not all I thought it was cracked up to be, you know, I'm grinding up pig guts and I'm stuffing them into this skin over here and. Well, there you go. But, uh, you know, I, I published like 45 papers as an academic and I'd say that six of them I was really happy with, really proud of. And, and mm-hmm. then the other 39 were kind of like filler, inert filler material. Okay. And, uh, you know, that Pat, you know, and, and that's, that's, that's pretty normal. You, you get your, you get your journal papers, you know, and, and, uh, then you get your conference papers that are really just pre, pre journal papers and stuff like that. So, yeah. you know, but I said, you know, that's, I don't, I don't think any of those are going to stand the test of time. In fact, I think a lot of the papers that people think stand the test of time don't stand the test of time either. It's, it's a very, uh, you know, they, they get superseded or they're just plain factually wrong. And, uh, I mean, I just read about some project that's going on up at the University of Virginia, I think it is, where they're going through and trying to replicate six of the landmark papers in biology to, to, to uh-huh. try to see if the results are, stand up. And they said, um, see, maybe it was only five, but they said two of the papers they replicated, and they were going through extremes to replicate exactly what was done in each paper. They said mm-hmm. two of these replicated, two of these, eh, we're not quite sure about. And one of these would go, what the hell was going on with this paper? You know, <laughs> this is completely wrong. So, I, yeah. you know, so even, even if you have a, you know, even if you think that you're, you're leaving a legacy, uh, you know, just look at, uh, you know, a legacy. Who do we remember from, from the 14 or the 1500s? You know, we remember Joan of Arc. Gutenberg and Columbus and that's about it you know and so either talk to God discover a country or invent books and then you're going to be remembered <laughs> but you know most of us ain't going to do that it's uh 
there's not a lot of things that, you know, we, in tech, we tend to, you know, blow our own horn a lot about how important everything we're doing is. But, yeah. you know, you look at what things we worked on 30 years ago, you can't remember, you know, pretty much any of them, you know, maybe the Walkman, you know? <laughs> but, uh, yeah. you know, yeah, the, there's like two or three engineers from that time frame yeah. that you may remember. Yeah. And, I, I mean, it's very, you know, it's very hard to, to be a, le you know, to leave a legacy in anything anymore. And uh, if that's your if that's your goal, you know, ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the people are not going to meet that. You have just got to be happy with, you know, have I done good work today? Have I put everything I've got into it? And you know, you can do that whether you're a professor or whether you know you're just digging the very best grave for somebody that you wanted to have. You know, <laughs> so it's you know just put your heart into it and and be happy with the work that you're doing. And if you you know not worry about what's going to happen. 40 or 400 years from now. Yeah. You can still make a name for yourself that maybe doesn't last a lot, you yeah. know, generations, yeah. but it'll still, yeah. I mean, you know, reverberate outwards. Yeah. But you know, you, whether that's a, you know, a legacy one way or the other, I mean, yeah, like Donald, not Donald Knuth probably has a legacy, but you know, you say that, but I don't know who that is. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, Richard Feynman has a legacy, you know. Yes. There, yes. There's a name you know. Yeah, uh, but, but the, I mean a, a local legacy, you know. Yeah. Is, you know, if I retired tomorrow, you know, 10, 15 years from now, no one's going to know who the hell I am. Mm -hmm. I, I think I've done good work maybe five or six years from now. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, but, you, you know, that's the thing to be happy with. You've done good work, you know, whether yeah. anybody knows it or not. And uh, you can do good work anywhere in, in doing anything as long as you're, you know, you're satisfying your own internal quality standards. And, and you know, and that's the thing that affects you a lot in, in academia that I was talking about before, where you have all these things that are, all these measurements that are rating you, you know, your age score, your number of papers, blah, blah, this, you know, how many grants you're doing and how hard you're working. And you, you step back from it and say, well, I'm working hard, but am I really working my best? Am I doing the very best that I could be doing? Or am I, you know, wasting so much of my energy just trying to keep the wheels going here? And, uh, you know, so there's that. Yeah. Well, so Dave, we've, uh, we've, uh, kept you for a while uh, yeah. talking about academia and industry and, and we appreciate your willingness to do that. And it's not that bad, kids. Don't worry about it. Everything I said <laughs> is cynical. It's, it's biased and cynical. It's a wonderful world out there. Go ahead. Go forth. Do wonderful things. <laughs> right. And as we've both evidenced by our careers, you can change your mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can, you can jump around. You can jump, jump around. around. It's you're not on a you're not on a train track. You know. You don't have to go from one from point a to point b and, and never and never deviate there yeah even in industry there's i know a, a couple of people who jump back and forth between management and the technical track mm -hmm. and they they think they like one better and then they get the itch they check it out and they they either stay there or they go oh no really this one isn't for me i'm going to jump back to management or sales mm -hmm. or you know research and development exactly and and you know uh people People talk about how careers aren't aren't what they used to be, and you know that they're, they're not long lived anymore, and they're not secure, and and there's a lot of stress and strain out there. But uh, you know, there's still a lot of flexibility out there if you can take advantage of it. If you don't get yourself tied down with too many student loans and and uh, too much debt, then you can still jump around and and you know do things that you want to do versus things that you have to do. 
Yeah. And, and so this being a engineering podcast, we would be amiss if we didn't ask what has you excited in the world of electronics these days? I, I'm guessing your, your, your interest would be in, in electronics and microprocessors and FPGAs, but I don't know what the world's a big place. What, what has you excited these days? I really, uh, I'm excited by this uh, CRISPR technology that's coming out now for genetic engineering, where uh, they've uh, you know they've got a very they found a uh, they found a gene inside of bacteria that they use to uh, they keep a library of viruses that they've been exposed to inside of their genome, and then mm-hmm. they had this uh, they had this other gene that can take those virus those signatures out of their genome and go out and hunt down viruses and, and essentially clip their DNA when they come into this into the bacteria cell and and uh, and protect them from the viruses that would kill them. And now scientists have figured out how to use that to do very precise targeting uh, on the on uh, genomes of everything else to insert genes instead of blasting them in there like they used to do. They put you know DNA particles on little gold pellets and then they blast the cell with them, hoping that some of that DNA would end up in the nucleus and then end up in the chromosomes. But now right. they can you know do very precise editing of genes, and uh, I think that that is really you know that is probably now what microprocessors were back like were like back in the 1970s and we're going to be seeing you know it's just some pretty bizarre things coming out of that and i think that a lot of the people that are working on bionics like uh like artificial eyes and i see all the problems that they have trying to put silicon into the retina of the eye and and attach it to nerve cells and get usable images out of it in somebody's brain and i Mm -hmm. think I think maybe they're going to all be short-circuited by somebody that's actually going to learn how to just go into somebody's brain or, or into their body, inject some CRISPR technology in there, turn on some genes, and all of a sudden the guy's going to grow a new eye. You know, wow. so I think that would be. I think I think I'm hoping that's what happens, and that and that you know this becomes a, you know as big a thing as microprocessors were and and that some kid doesn't get hold of it and make some super flu and kill us all you know that would be <laughs> that would be that would be nice <laughs> but really what a way to go super fluid eat you eat you eat your brains mm. yeah well good luck making a meal out of mine <laughs> <laughs> maybe you're the aperitif mm. ah dave the appetizer of life <laughs> Anyway, that's what has me excited. <laughs> well, fantastic. Well, thank you for sharing that. And uh, uh, if people want to, uh, if people should want to get a hold of you, uh, where should we send them, Dave? Uh, my uh, Twitter handle is at sign D E V B I S M E. And, uh, or you can just send email to almost any address at excess.com and it gets routed through to me. Almost okay. any address, just type random keys yep. and send. They're, they're, if you just typed in a random string at excess.com, it would come to me because that's the way it's set up. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> All right. And, and excess is X-E-S-S. That's correct. Like X-ray Edward Samuel Samuel. Fantastic. Well, Dave, thank you so much for spending time with us uh, on this episode and uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you for letting me come on here and ramble for an hour and a half. My girlfriend won't even let me do that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Have a great evening. Thank you very much. Bye, guys. Take it easy. Good night. 
the Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson. <laughs>